The Chinese missionary and theologian Watchman Nee once told the story of a ladybug who was having a conversation with a centipede. And in their conversation, the ladybug asked the centipede which leg it moves first when it decides to walk. And the centipede, having a hundred legs, thought about it for a minute and wasn't able to give an immediate answer, and then began to think about it and grew so confused that he literally forgot how to walk. And long after the ladybug had departed and the night had fallen, the caterpillar, frozen in the paralysis of analysis, sat wondering which leg he should move first if he wanted to walk. Well, he finally fell asleep and was awakened by the sunrise in the morning coming over the horizon. And when he saw the brilliant light coming through the leaves, he was so moved by the splendor of it that he immediately just took off walking in the direction of the light. And the purpose of the story that he told was to highlight how sometimes something so simple can become so complicated that we can literally become frozen. And part of the purpose of John in writing this letter is to take a faith that is quite simple in nature, but has a tendency to become very complicated, and to bring it back into simplicity again. Now imagine for just a moment a conversation that might happen between a believer and a non-believer. And the non-believer asks the believer a question and simply just says, how do you know that you are going to heaven? Or how do you know that you're saved? And I've been asked that question, and sometimes the effect that that question can have upon a person or upon a Christian can be much like the question that the ladybug asked the centipede. Well, we can begin to think, well, how do I know? Am I sure? Can I be sure? Will I stand before him and perhaps hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you? How can I absolutely know that I'm saved? Is it because I go to church? Is that the answer to the question? Well, I was faithful to attend. Is it because of my service or my giving or my sacrifice? Is that the thing that causes me to stand confident that I'll be accepted before him when he comes? What is it? Why am I saved? How do I actually know that I can believe or that I am saved? Is it because I read the Bible? Is it because I went forward or because I raised my hand in a service and simply just made a profession? Where does my confidence stand? And I wonder if anyone here, if we've ever asked ourselves that question or been asked that question, how do we know that we're saved? Or do we absolutely know that we're saved? Well, what the Apostle John does in chapter 5 is he closes out his epistle. As he cuts through all of the complication and he cuts through all of the confusion of the things that can distract our minds or cloud our thinking, and he brings us right back to the simple truth of where the answer to that question lies. How can I know that I know that I'm saved? And is that actually possible? Notice what John says just as he begins the chapter here. He brings and starts it right from the very beginning all the way to the end. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now that's a thick sentence and pregnant with truth. The first question that comes into our mind as we consider what John has just stated to us, that whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, is what does it mean to be born of God? And the reference in the Bible 
pertains to a conversation that Jesus had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus that's recorded for us in John's Gospel in chapter 3. And we're told there that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he asked him the question. And he said, good teacher, how do we know? We know that you're come from God and that you're doing things, but what, what gives? And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said to him, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused by that, and he thought, born again? He said, well, how can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus, I'm sure, smiled as he replied, and he said, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And what Jesus was talking about when he said to Nicodemus that you must be born again is that there must be a spiritual quickening or a spiritual awakening or a spiritual birth that happens in your life. Now, man is made in the image of God, and thus we are born into this world spiritually capable, but spiritually dead. And the reason why we're born spiritually dead is because the sin of Adam. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat from the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, they were spiritually cut off and separated from God. And from them, every man, woman, and child that has come into the world since then has come into this world spiritually capable, but spiritually dead. And something must happen that brings spiritual life, Holy Spirit life, into that individual, or else, as Jesus said, they cannot see the kingdom of God. They must be spiritually born. Well, Nicodemus went on to ask the question, and he said, how is a man born again? How can these things be? And Jesus' answer to that question is probably one of the most famous verses in the entire New Testament. It's John 3.16, where Jesus said that What is it again? For God so loved the world, right? The caterpillar, which leg goes first, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, and here it is, believeth in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, spiritual rebirth or Holy Spirit regeneration or life comes through faith in the Son of God, believing in Jesus Christ. When a person puts their faith on Christ, that person is born again. And that's exactly what John says here in this verse. He says, For whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So what is it concerning Jesus that I'm to believe if I'm to be born again and thus be saved? See the kingdom of God. Well, I must believe, according to John, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the word Christ literally means Messiah or Savior. And so I'm believing that Jesus is the Messiah or the promised Savior, the one that is qualified, competent, and that actually did pay the price for my sins. Now, to believe that Jesus is the Christ means that I'm also believing that he met the criteria that was necessary to qualify him as the Christ. Not just anyone could come on the scene and just be the Christ. They had to meet the criteria in order to pay the debt of sin that 
I owed. And so to believe that Jesus is the Christ means that I must first of all believe that he was virgin born. That's essential. The Bible says that he was born of a virgin. Why? Because the fact that he was virgin born mean that he was born with blood that was different than every other human that was born from Adam. He was born with untainted blood. He didn't have original sin. That's why Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, that he was like Adam and that he was created without sin, or he wasn't created, but he came into the world without sin. And so he had to be born of a virgin. And so do I believe that? He also had to lead a sinless life in order for him to qualify to be the Messiah or the Savior. If he at any point sinned from the time that he was born until the time that he died, he ceases to be qualified to be the Savior because he becomes like everyone else, just like Adam, someone who needs to die for his own sins and thus he cannot die for someone else's. And also, in order to qualify, it means that he was tempted in all points that man can be tempted in and overcame all of those temptations. Now, if he was only tempted in some things, but not all, then he can still qualify for heaven himself, but he cannot be the Savior or the Messiah because he has to struggle or overcome the temptations that I have failed in. He has to pay for every sin, and thus he must overcome the temptation of every sin. Now, not even I am tempted by everything. There are some things that people do that do not tempt me at all. There are other things that are great temptations for me. But Jesus had to face all temptation that everyone faces, feel the weight of that temptation and the desire and overcome it. That means not give in to it. And so to believe that he is the Christ means that I believe that he was tempted in all things and yet he overcame. For him to qualify to be the Christ also means that he had to absorb in himself the full punishment for all the sins of the world. That God the Father laid upon him the wrath and iniquity for all sin that was ever committed from the sin of Adam in the garden until the last sin that will ever be committed. All of that punishment was placed upon Jesus Christ. In order for him to be the Messiah, he has to bear the weight of all of that wrath. For him to be the Messiah, he also had to rise again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof that he actually led a sinless life. If he had sinned, he would stay dead. But if he did not sin, then it would be impossible for him to stay dead because death is only the result of sin. And if he was actually sinless, then he would absolutely rise. And so for him to be the Christ means that he rose again. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, concerning him qualifying to be the Savior, the Christ, he has to be willing in all that he accomplished, to trade places with me. Meaning that he has to be willing to take my entire list of sins, transgressions, and iniquity and exchange my sin for his perfection and say, okay, you want to make a deal? I'll take all of your sin, give me your paper, and I'll give you my perfection. I'll hand you my paper. And he has to be willing to make that deal in order for that to happen. Well, John says here, he opens the chapter actually by saying, 
whosoever believes, which means it gives me hope that he is willing to do that. And so for me to believe that Jesus is the Christ means that I believe that he was virgin born, that he led a sinless life, that he was tempted in all and overcame, that he absorbed the full punishment of the wrath of God and death, that he rose again, and that he is willing to exchange places with me in that. And the question that's before every one of us that sits here tonight is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That Jesus met all of the criteria necessary to be the Savior of the world. Now, what does it mean to believe? Because I might hear all of those things and say, well, I don't have too much of a problem with any of that from a historical standpoint, and there seems to be enough substantiation to all of it for me to believe it. But what does it mean in my life for me to believe that? It means more than just simply an intellectual exercise. Well, I can hammer out the facts of all of that, and I can put a why next to every one of those statements. Virgin born, sinless life, absorbed the wrath, rose again. Why, why, okay, yes, I believe all those things. My intellect comes into alignment with the statement, therefore I believe. No, 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 no. That's not belief or faith in the biblical context. See, I believe intellectually that the world is round. Now, in myself, I can't prove that. I can show you a satellite photo. I can lay out all the things that I've seen online. But really, I've never seen the earth from outside. So I don't actually know it, but I believe it based upon all the evidence that's been given to me. But the fact that the earth is round does not define my life. If the earth actually was proved one day to actually be flat, it wouldn't change my life one bit. I would lead the same exact life on the other side of that revelation that I lived on the foreside of that revelation. It doesn't change me one bit. Whereas to believe in Jesus Christ is not simply an intellectual alignment with facts, but rather it's a life-defining faith. Meaning that when I come to realize that I believe these things about Jesus, it changes my life from the inside and it changes every part of my life. It reaches and touches every part of my life. It becomes the definition of who I am. It changes my ideals. It changes my morals. It changes the fabric and fiber of the way I think. It changes my worldview and my outlook on life. It changes the way that I see people, the way I think about God, the way I think about self. The way I think about everything is now defined by this faith, the fact that I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so belief or faith, as John talks about here, is not intellectual agreement with these statements and facts, but rather it's something that gets into my life and it produces a change and an effect in me that looks like something on the other side. It's a state of being. Now what John does is he moves on from this opening statement that whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God is that he gives to us five defining characteristics, five things that will be evident in my life that will prove or disprove whether or not I actually believe that Jesus is the Christ. Because if I believe it and my life is changed by it, then that's going to look like something. And there's going to be common appearance to what that looks like in every life. And John lays out for us five things 
or five proofs, five ways that we can know that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. The first he gives to us in his same breath statement in the second half of verse one, and that a defining characteristic of faith in a life is that we will love God and we will love his people. Notice what John says. He says, and everyone that loves him that begat, that's God. He's the one that brought forth Christ and brings forth Christians loves him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And so a defining characteristic of the change that happens in a life of faith, someone who believes, is that they love God and they love God's people. Now we dealt with the subject of love in chapter 4, verses 7 all the way through 21. And we talked about how love in the biblical context is a choice and not a feeling. And so a person who loves God has made a choice or a decision to set their affection and their love upon God. It's an unconditional, undying type of love. And that love will also not just be towards God alone, but it will also be a love that's given towards his people. Now, aren't you thankful, and I'm thankful for this, that the kind of love that we're called to have towards the children of God is an agape love and not a feeling-based love. Because sometimes I don't feel love towards certain people. It's not a feeling that's there. But I still have the ability to choose that I'm going to love you because you are a child of God. And that's the kind of love that John is talking about here. And so faith in God, faith in Christ as Messiah in my life, is going to look like love towards God and love towards God's people. And without love, I don't have faith. That's what John is saying here. The second thing that's going to be a defining characteristic of faith in my life is that there's going to be obedience to his commands. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. Is that not only do we love God and love the children of God, but he says that we also keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. That is, that if I actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, then one of the changes that's going to result in my life is that I'm going to come into alignment, not just in my mind, but with my behavior and my morality. I'm going to walk in obedience to his commands. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, he said, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Just a few verses later, verse 23 of the same chapter, Jesus says again, he answered and he said unto him, if a man loves me, then he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and we will make our abode or our home with him. The obedience that's the response of love. In John chapter 15, verse 10, the same exact speech that Jesus is giving to his disciples just a little bit later on. He says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. And so if I love him, if I believe in him, then the evidence of that, the shaping in my life is that I'm going to be obedient to his commands because I love him. I become a servant to his desire and design for my life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, 
The Apostle Paul describes obedience this way, and it helps me to understand how this works. He says, but God be thanked that you were, and he's speaking of before your salvation, before you came to Christ, you were the servants or the slaves of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. In other words, before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to the desires of our body. Whatever our body said it wanted, we were slaves to obey it and to produce for our body those things that we wanted. But once we came to Christ, those chains were supernaturally broken and there was a change a switch that happened in our lives wherein now we became servants or slaves to righteousness. Now, for the first time in my life, I have a desire to do what's right and a desire to do what's good and to obey the Lord. And the only thing that can produce in a human life the desire to please God is true salvation. That God has come into that life and there's a change in that life. Faith produces that change. And so an evidence that I'm truly saved is that I'm walking in obedience to his commands. The third thing that John tells us that is an evidence that I actually do believe in my life and its appearance is that my attitude toward his commandments is changed. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. Not only do we keep his commandments, but he says his commandments are not grievous. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember my attitude towards the commands of God prior to my salvation. I hated the laws of God before I became a Christian. And the reason why I hated the laws of God is that because they were so contrary to my nature and what I was by birth, that it seemed sadistic and mean to me that God would ask of me something that was so contradictory to what I was and what I wanted to do in and of myself. And thus I hated the laws of God. They were more than grievous. I, I, I despised the law of God when I wasn't a Christian. It was the exact opposite of the way that I wanted to live my life. It was restrictive. But once I came to Christ, all of that changed. I went from being a slave to sin and a, a lover of it to being a servant of righteousness, and now I began to love the commands of God. I began to love the things that God said and realize that the commands of God are not there to be restrictive, but they actually are the way of life. Psalm chapter 19, verse 8, says that the commandment of the Lord is pure. And what that actually means when it says that the commandment of the Lord is pure is that the commandment of God is coming from a pure motive. Meaning that when God gives us commands or rules or things that we should live by, he's not doing it because he's trying to torture us or lay boundaries on us that are just to make us suffer. But rather, God's heart and desire for us is good in the deepest sense. He wants what's absolutely best for us. He wants us to live. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. And when Christ came into my life, I realized that the commandments of God and the things that he asks of us are not there to restrain, but they're there to give life. This is the way that actually works. The commandment of the Lord is pure, as he says. 
James chapter 1, verse 25, the apostle James, he says that the commandments of God or the law of God is the law of liberty. Meaning it's the law that brings freedom. Rather than the chains I thought it was, it actually breaks chains and gives true freedom. And an evidence that I'm truly saved is that my attitude towards the law of God is completely different. I no longer hate it and despise it and ride the fence wondering what can I possibly get away with. But now I want to please him and I want to do the things that are right in his eyes and I love his commands because they are life to me. And I ask you the question tonight, what is your attitude towards the commands of God? Do you see them as restrictive and restraining? Do you see them as sadistic and archaic and well, God understands and I'm going to get away with as much as I can? Or can you say, I want God's will and I want God's ways in my life, no matter how much it makes my flesh writhe in starvation and in death, because I believe that his ways are right. My attitude towards his commands are evidence either for or against my profession of faith. The fourth mark of someone who truly believes that Jesus is the Christ is that they will overcome the world. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, meaning our belief in Jesus Christ is the key to our overcoming. And so a mark that I truly believe is that I'm going to overcome the world. Now, I listen to these words, and this is where the check engine light goes on the easiest for me and probably for many of us here. We say, well, you know what? You had me up until this point, but in all honesty, I'm not sure if I could declare before the courtroom of heaven and before the eyes of a God who sees all things that I have truly overcome the world. Because in all honesty, the world might still have a place. It might still have a hold on me somewhere. And if my eternity was measured and weighed in this one thing alone, I'm not sure exactly where I stand in this. Listen, what John gives to us here in this word of saying that he that believes or he that is born of God has overcome the world, he's giving to us two things. He's giving to us a promise and a path. The promise is this, is that if I actually believe in him, then I'm going to be continually overcoming the world more and more as I walk with him. And as I continue to believe, fix my eyes on him and set my feet towards him, then that's going to be the key to me overcoming the world. So the promise is that I will overcome if I keep walking and believing. And the path is that I'm to keep my eyes, my heart, and my faith set on him, and it's actually going to happen. Now, when I think back upon my Christian life from the very beginning up until now, 17 or 18 years ago, up until the present day, I think about the grip that the world had upon my heart back in those early days. I had this love affair in the early portion of my Christian life with the television show The Simpsons. It was just something that I carried in. It was baggage that remained with me into my early years of salvation. And I remember before I was even saved, I was having a conversation with a Christian, and I asked him that question. I said, is it wrong to watch The Simpsons? And his reply to me was, 
that it's worldly. He didn't say yes or no. He didn't say it's sin or it's not sin. And he just said that it's worldly. And that always stuck in my mind, that it's worldly. And I, I resisted that. I thought, no, nah, they make fun of the world. They're not worldly. And I would justify it and the whole thing, and I would continue to watch. But something happened as I continued to grow in my relationship with Christ, in my love for the Word of God, and just in the progression path that God had for me, is that the desire and the, 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 the affection towards that, it just died. It died a natural death to the point where one day I turned it on and watched it and it did absolutely nothing for me. It was dead. It was gone. There was no more pleasure in it. It was just, it felt like a waste of time. And when I think back, there's been so many things like that in my Christian life that early on I would say, well, this is maybe something that, that still has a hold or a place or that I love. But over time and in growth, God has given me victory over those things, and those things no longer remain. Now, there are still things, even in my life right now, that in all honesty, I can be moved by them. Movies don't do it for me anymore. Television, entertainment, things like that, it doesn't really have a place. I just don't hunger for it. I don't desire it. But there are times when I see a really nice car. <laughs> It gets my attention. It's not as though it's a, a luster, like, oh, I've got to have it, or I'm going to, that's my goal in life. But I know that that's something that one day I'm going to look at it, and it's going to be absolutely nothing. And so an evidence that I'm saved, that I truly believe, is that I can look back upon my life in the time that I've walked with Christ, and there is overcoming happening in me. And there is faith to understand that if I continue He's going to continue to put the world behind me in its proper context to see it as it is. And I, like Paul, will be able to say, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. It's a mark of faith in the life of a believer is that the world does not have a hold on us any longer. Well, in verse 6, John has something he has to settle before he gives us the fifth and final in his list of five here. He says concerning the person of Christ in verse 6. He says, this is he, speaking of Jesus, that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. One of the things that John was wrestling with in his day that we still wrestle with even to this day is that not everything that claims to be called Jesus is necessarily the true Jesus or the Jesus of the Bible. And in John's day, the heresy or the lie or the false Jesus that was circulating around was the Gnostic Jesus. And we've talked about that earlier in our study of John. They believed in a different Jesus. And what they believed was that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. That he was just a spiritual apparition that when he walked, he didn't leave footprints. When he ate, there was no matter and the whole thing. And he was just a spirit, a spiritual apparition. No water, no blood, just spirit. What John is saying is that that's a false Jesus, and it's essential that we understand that we're talking about the proper Jesus. And so he says, the Jesus that I'm talking about here is a Jesus that came by water and by blood. Well, what does he mean by that when he says that he came by water? Well, the Bible interprets the Bible, right? In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus himself explains what that means. 
It says that Jesus talking to Nicodemus answered him and he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what the Bible means here when it says that he came by water, it's speaking of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. It speaks of his humanity. It tells us that when Jesus called himself the son of man, that he was speaking of the fact that he was fully human in nature. And it's essential that we believe that. Now, that's not the heresy of our day. The Gnostics have long died off, and it's pretty well generally accepted that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. However, there are other Jesuses that are presented to the church today. The Jesus that is just an angel that the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses put forth. The Jesus that is Mother God as well as Father God. And that's not the true Jesus. You say, well, who's the true Jesus? Would the real Jesus please stand up? The answer is that the real Jesus is the Jesus that the Bible sets before us. That's who the real Jesus is. And the Bible sets before us a Jesus that came in the flesh, that he was fully human, and that he came in the flesh and with blood. He's the Jesus of the Bible. And John takes the time to declare that emphatically and bring that forth factually, that this is the Jesus that we're speaking of. And he says, it's the spirit that bears witness of this because the spirit is truth. Now, what does he mean by that? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, or at least one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is that he convinces humanity concerning the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that when the spirit has come, he will convince or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. And he said that when the spirit comes, he will testify of me. And so the Holy Spirit bears witness, even in the life of an unbeliever, that the real Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. Before I got saved, gave my life to Jesus Christ, there was a whole slew of people that shared the gospel with me, one of whom was my wife before she was my wife. She was my girlfriend who got saved, and I broke up with her when she came and told me that she had given her life to Jesus Christ. And I was crushed. My heart was broken. She left me for another man. And in my mind, it was even worse than that because I didn't believe, so I thought she was just coming up with some silly excuse and reason to break off the relationship. And in the pain of healing over that breakup, I remember a particular instance. I was sitting in the woods by a a large uh, reservoir, and I was journaling, and I was just writing down my thoughts and trying to filter things through, and I was kind of writing a letter to her that I would probably never give to her, and I never did. Though after I was saved, I showed her the journal entry. And at the end of that letter, that journal entry, I was just contemplating, and I said these words. I wrote them down. I remember them. I said that in the last day... When you rise or fall, we'll know who was right. And when I wrote those words as an unbeliever, deep inside, underneath what I would even admit to myself, I knew she was right. I still didn't get saved for a while. But I knew when I wrote those words that she would rise. I knew inside that she was right. What is that? It's the spirit bearing witness that the Jesus of the Bible is absolutely 
the truth. I wish I still had that journal. I, I had it for a long time, and I left it in a musty closet, and it molded over to the point where the words were no longer legible. But the Spirit bears witness in our hearts to the fact that Jesus is the very Christ, the Christ of God whom the Bible sets him forth to be. And then John says this concerning the testimony that the Spirit bears. Verse 7. He says, for there are three that bear record or bear testimony in heaven. The Father, whom we know to be God the Father. The Word, whom we know to be Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? Jesus. And so the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit of God, that these three bear record in heaven. And John says that these three are one. Now, there you have a text that shows or reveals what we call the Trinity or the triunity of the Godhead. We believe in one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is a great mystery. Because how can they be three distinct and yet only be one? And the Bible is emphatic that God is one. And we cannot answer that question. We can illustrate. We can say, well, water can be vapor, liquid, or ice. We could say an egg can be the shell, the yolk, and the white but it's all one egg. You know, we can try, but it's a mystery that we will not be able to fathom until we know, even as we are known. And until then, we believe it because the Bible teaches it, though we don't understand it and can't perfectly explain it, that these three are one. Now, those three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they bear record in heaven. That's great, but we're not in heaven. We're on earth. So John says in verse 8, that there are three that bear witness in the earth. So the testimony of heaven reaches into the earth by who? First of all, the Spirit. Now, there's the link between heaven and earth because there's three that bear witness, right? The Father, the Spirit, or the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And then in earth, it is the Spirit and then the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. So what is the water and the blood? Listen, it is the humanity and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That those three bear testimony in the world to the truth of the Bible, of the gospel, of salvation. That Jesus came into this world, God in the flesh, that he died a sinner's death and his perfect blood was shed for the sins of humanity. And the Holy Spirit now carries that message into the hearts of lost people, whether it be in the quietness of their own meditation as they sit by a reservoir thinking on these things, or whether it be when they're sitting in a church service listening to a message declaring the truth of the scriptures, or whether it be when they're sitting in a car listening to a radio program or any other way in which the Holy Spirit brings this message to bear upon the heart, there are three that bear testimony to the truth of this message in the earth. The Spirit, the humanity, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. 
Now, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God or the testimony of God is greater. Now, we can say amen to that, right? Now, right now, you're receiving the testimony of a man. I'm testifying before you to the things that God has said, testifying to you concerning things that have happened in my own life. And there can be validity to my testimony. But when God testifies concerning something, that testimony way supersedes the testimony of any man. The testimony of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, or the testimony of God which he has testified of his son. What's that? That his son came in the flesh, died in perfection, rose again to give life, and that by faith and belief in his name, we are born again, and thus, as Jesus said, we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, he that believes, now we come to number five, the fifth evidence or mark that I believe, that I have faith that Jesus is the Christ. He says, he that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him, God, a liar because he believes not the record or the testimony that God gave us his son. And this is the record that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. So what is the fifth mark or the fifth evidence that I truly do believe within my life? Not only do I love God and love people, as he said back at the beginning, not only do I obey him and keep his commands, my attitude is changed towards his commands and the things that he says. I've overcome the world. But fifthly and finally, the mark that I truly believe is that I have the testimony of the Holy Spirit in my heart, assuring me that I belong to him. That there's an inner witness of the Spirit in my life testifying to the fact that I'm saved. He that believes on the Son of God has this witness in himself because uh, he believes on these things. So here's the summation for the believer, the person that believes. They love God and the person of Christ. They love the people of God. They keep his commands. They overcome the world. And they have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in their life. Now, if you can say, check, 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 check. All of those things are true within my life. Then what does that mean? What is the result of that? John goes on to say, notice in verse 11. He says, this is the testimony that, that, uh, the, the, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He that has the son has life, and he that has not the Son of God has not life. Here's what it is. If you believe, then you are saved. That's what John is declaring to us here. Notice that he doesn't put it in the present tense or in the future tense. He doesn't say that he that has the Son will be saved or is being saved or is have salvation pending in their lives. He says, no, if you have the Son, then you have life meaning that you are already in the mind of God saved. Your name is written in heaven, and you can stand upon the fact that you're saved if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. The second result he gives to us in verse 13, which is probably one of the greatest treasures that you and I can possess as a believer. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, 
and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So what he tells us here is that not only are we saved, but we can know that we're saved. Now, some people are scandalized by that. They'll say, well, you can't know that you're going to heaven. You can hope that you're going to heaven, or you can try to go to heaven, but you can't know that you're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us here that we can stand in assurance and we can know that we have eternal life. It is not the will of God that we stand in doubt day by day or year by year, hoping that maybe we are actually saved. He wants us to be certain of the fact that we might rest in him completely. It's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 11, he said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so in him, we can know that we're saved with absolute assurance. And John gives us that assurance here. And then thirdly, what we have in verse 14, he says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. The third thing that we have now that we are believing in Jesus Christ is that we have confidence to come before God in prayer. Now, this is an amazing promise concerning prayer in the life of a believer. What John tells us here is that if we ask according to his will, then we have the assurance and confidence that he has heard our prayer. And if we have the assurance and the confidence that he has heard our prayer, then we also have the assurance and confidence that it's done, that God has answered our prayer. You say, well, how do you know the will of God for your life so that you can know that you're praying according to his will? Do you know how I do it? I pray the scriptures. When I see a promise of God given to me in the Bible, I stand upon that promise and I pray for it, that God would fulfill that promise within my life, whatever that promise might be. And when I do that, I know I'm praying according to the will of God. And so I desire a closer walk with God, or I desire more of his Holy Spirit power and presence in my life. Well, Jesus promised in Luke 11, verse 13, he said, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? And so if I ask for the Holy Spirit, I have a promise and assurance that that is the will of God for my life. And so I know that he heard my prayer because I asked according to his will. And if I've asked according to his will and I know that he hears me, then I know that I have the thing that I ask for. Therefore, by faith, I believe that God is answering the prayer that I've prayed. Even if I can't feel it or I haven't seen the answer to that prayer yet. Now, Asking according to the will of God goes one step further than just simply praying the promises or believing the promises. Isaiah chapter 59 verses 1 and 2 tells me that if I'm walking or behaving contrary to the will of God for my life, that God closes his ear off to my prayer. So it is possible for me to be praying the promises of God and yet not seeing an answer to those prayers. And the reason for it is because though I'm praying according to his written will, I'm not living or walking according to his 
desired will for my life. And God says, well, I'm not going to answer you and bless you when you're walking and living in open disobedience to my commands. And so there are times that God will wait for me to bring my life into alignment. Now, when I see unanswered prayer in my life, what do I do? I say, God, is there an area in my life where I'm not walking with you rightly? And God is faithful when we do that to reveal to us where we've gone sideways and so that we can make those corrections. And hopefully our spirit is humble enough and our heart is soft enough that we might make those adjustments and corrections. And so if I'm living the way that he's called me to live and I'm praying according to what he's spoken in my life, then I can be absolutely certain that he's going to answer. You say, okay, check and check. I'm walking the best that I can, the best that I know how. There's no open sin. I'm praying things that I know are God's will, but yet I'm still not seeing an answer in my life. What gives? Psalm chapter 84, verse 11. It's where I stand. It says that he will withhold no good thing from them that walk uprightly. What does that mean? It means that if God in his sovereign knowledge doesn't fulfill something in my life that I'm hoping that he will or that I think that he should, then he knows in some way that it would not be good for me for him to fulfill that request and answer that prayer the way I'm hoping that he would. Or maybe just the timing of what I'm asking for isn't right in my life right now. And so I'm called to trust in his sovereignty, his care for me, and in his timing and his perfect will for my life. And in that, I have boldness and assurance that if I pray according to his will, I know I've been heard and I know that he will answer the prayer according to his perfect knowledge and understanding of the situation. The post-log of the epistle, verses 16 through 21, what John gives to us here are just five quick flashing words concerning our walk. Not necessarily our faith anymore, but now our walk in him. How do I walk in the Lord? Number one is that I must walk in continual cleansing. Notice in verse 16. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, I know what happens when you hear that verse. You go, that's me. I've done it. I committed the one sin that John does not tell us what it is here that is unto death. My sin is the sin unto death. Thankfully, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? What's the sin unto death? Jesus said that the sin that is unpardonable is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit means to reject his testimony. What is his testimony? That Jesus is the Christ. If I reject the Spirit's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, I cannot be forgiven of that sin. That is, if I die having held that position that I haven't received him as my Savior, I can't be forgiven of that sin. All other sins and unrighteousnesses, Jesus said, will be forgiven unto men when I give my life to Christ. But if I reject the, t the Spirit's testimony... So what's John saying? He's saying, don't pray that someone who is refusing Jesus Christ and won't accept his salvation, don't pray that their sins will be forgiven because their sins will not be forgiven unless they receive Christ. 
But any other sin that a person commits, pray for cleansing to that sin. And God will give life when he hears the prayer of contrition and confession. And we're able even to pray for one another in this. And so cleansing, continual cleansing for sin, is an essential part of our walk. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself. Now that's the second word that John gives to us concerning our walk, is that we're to maintain separation or a holy life. That we have a responsibility in our walk with him to keep ourselves in the narrow path. Jesus has set the boundaries. He says, this is the way, walk in it. And then he gives us the freedom of will, whether or not we're going to obey and continually walk in that path. And so he that is begotten of God keeps himself and the wicked one touches him not. There's safety in the middle of that path. And we know that we are the children of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Two things that John says in these two verses. One is that we must keep before us always the understanding and the mindset that this world and the kingdom of God are two separate things. They are not one and the same. The whole world lies in wickedness. And he came to put wickedness away. We are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom that's to come. And then in verse 20, he calls us to walk in what's true. He's given us an understanding that we may know him that's true, that we're in him that's true, and that this is the true God and this is eternal life. And thus we're to walk in truth. And then finally, verse 21, we're to walk in freedom. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You say, that's an odd way for someone to just finish an epistle. Like, land the plane a little bit gracefully. Would you, John, give us a benediction or, or some kind of a blessing? He actually does. This is a great benediction that John gives here. It's the exhortation to keep ourselves in freedom. The Apostle Paul, in one of his epistles, defines idolatry as covetousness, meaning the unsatisfied desire for more. That's what New Testament idolatry is. Old Testament idolatry was statues and figures and you know, false gods and all the rest. New Testament idolatry is greed. It's a desire and a lust after the things of the world for more. And what John is saying here is this, is that if you can keep yourselves from a lust and a desire for more, then you're going to keep yourself in a place of freedom. And that's going to be for the best well-being of your walk with him and of your walk in truth. The musicians can come as we close. And I leave you with just this final question to ponder in your own mind. How do you know that you're saved? And do you know that you're saved? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And when I say believe, is it what defines your very life? Do you love God and love the people of God by choice? Do you walk in obedience to his commands and find that his commands are not a grief to you and restrictive, 
but rather their pleasure to you, more to be desired than gold, than much fine gold and honey from the honeycomb. Is the will of God something that you desire to walk in in your life, or is it something that you constantly resist? Are you overcoming? I'm not talking about perfection, but is there progress? Are you walking further and further from the world and closer and closer to Christ? Is that separation happening? Is there faith? Do you actually believe? And it's a good thing for us to consider and ask ourselves as we close out this epistle and consider all that John has placed before us. My second question tonight is perhaps for someone here that has yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as you just listen tonight to these things that define the gospel, that define the person of the Son of God, that define truth, that define what it means to believe, that you might sit here and you might say, you know what? I do believe all of those things concerning Jesus Christ. I believe that he was born of a virgin. I believe that he led a sinless life, that he was tempted in all points like we are, but yet that he overcame. I believe that he died absorbing the full punishment and weight of the wrath of God that sin deserved. And I believe, I don't know why, but I believe in my heart of hearts that he did rise from the dead and that he is in fact willing to trade papers and trade places with me my sin for his righteousness. But I've never made a profession of faith in Christ. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never made that profession of faith in Christ. You say, how do I do it? How do I become born again believing in those things? Jesus gave us the answer. It's John chapter 1, verse 12. And it says this. It says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power or the right to be called the sons of God or the daughters of God. You say, well, how do I receive him? I believe him. How do I receive him? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11 says that if we confess with our mouth, the words come forth verbally, that Jesus is Lord, that is that he is the Christ. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, that I will be saved. That's what Paul said. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation, and with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. For whosoever believes on him will not be ashamed. And so if you've never received Jesus as the Christ, but you believe in your heart of hearts, then the call of the Holy Spirit for you tonight is that you would say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are everything that the Bible says that you are. And your spirit testifies in me that it is all true, and I believe it. And I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. I'll give you my sins. And if you'd be willing, would you give me your perfection that I might be born again and see the kingdom of God? And the Bible declares emphatically that any human being with a heartbeat that comes to God in that way will be saved the moment that confession is made. And so I invite you tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, after the service is over, come and talk to me. Talk to the person that maybe came with you or someone that's here and say, I need to receive Jesus as the Christ in my life. And he will meet you where he met all of us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our hearts and bless your people as they go. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.